0: everyone. Welcome to Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, August 8, 2018 edition of our little weather podcast get-together, and it's been a busy week uh, for lots of you in the Southeast, especially if you live in North and South Carolina. So uh, we're going to quickly uh, talk about that severe weather here in just a little bit, but we do have uh, Matthew Marchetti on with us tonight. Uh, he is with CrowdSource Rescue, and this is a, a group of folks who are in the Houston, Texas area and kind of really uh, was at the forefront of Hurricane Harvey and getting so many folks uh, rescued in the the major flooding event uh, that took place during Harvey. So we're going to have Matthew on tonight, kind of talk about his program and his app and uh, just kind of some of the stories that uh, that came out of Hurricane uh, Harvey. So if you have any questions tonight, if you're listening or following along on our uh, social media platforms of so Facebook Live or Periscope or watching on our YouTube page, uh, please interact with us. We'd love to have your questions or comments. The best way to get them to us is at uh, on our Twitter account, at Carolina WX Group. But we'll also monitor the Periscope and the Facebook Live stream uh, for your questions. And if you're listening to the podcast version Uh, Later on, we'll have our uh, guest kind of uh, give out some information of how uh, you can contact and learn more about crowdsource rescue. So I'm happy to have uh, Matthew with us tonight and looking forward to uh, digging into exactly what happened in the Houston area during Hurricane Harvey uh, with the, uh, the thousands of rescues that took place. Before we do that, I did talk a little bit about the severe weather right now. Severe weather ongoing in the uh, South Carolina and North Carolina areas, especially towards the Raleigh area, down towards Fayetteville. And then there's another cluster of severe thunderstorms moving um, from Greenville, South Carolina, towards Columbia, South Carolina. And that's where I want to bring in Chris Jackson, who is stationed in Columbia, South Carolina. Chris, uh, these storms have uh, uh, caused a lot of uh, chaos up in western North Carolina and the upstate of South Carolina. And it looks like they're uh, bearing down on you guys there in the uh, Columbia area.
1: Absolutely, Scotty. Looking looking at the radar right down, there's a line of storms that extend uh, from Rock Hill, basically back to the southwest, uh, uh, from uh, Abbeville, uh, Greenwood, over to the state line near Lake Hartwell. Uh, currently got uh, two severe thunderstorm warnings uh, for the same storm. The first warning goes into 830, and that's for uh, Spartanburg, Greenwood, Gaffney, Lawrence, Union, Abbeville counties. And then I think the... The National Weather Service actually just extended that warning until 9 p.m. for Newberry County. And uh, let me flip over here. I'll share my screen to show, show everybody what's kind of going on here. righty, All right. So looking at the radar here, this is the severe storm that uh, I was just talking about. The, uh, the National Weather Service just extended the warning until 9, 9 p.m. is heading off to the east southeast. And uh, it's going to head into uh, Whitmire and in the city of Newberry probably within the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, risk with this is going to be winds of uh, 50 to 60 miles per hour and uh, a lot of cloud ground lightning and uh, torrential rainfall. Other than that, uh, just you know, the the line it's like I said, it extends from Rock Hill down to the uh, Lake Hartwell area uh, through Greenwood and uh, Abbeville, and will continue to move to the southeast toward Columbia over the next hour or so.
0: All right, thank you for that report, Chris. And uh, Chris, why you have your well? I was going to say why you have your radar screen but uh, could you go up to the Raleigh area? We'll just quickly talk about what's going on up in Raleigh as well. Uh, secondary, or another line of severe weather moving through, uh, getting ready to move through the Raleigh metro area, uh, places like Sanford and Southern Pines, down towards Laurenburg Rockingham all under severe thunderstorm warnings right now. and The main threat with these, as well as damaging winds, uh, very uh, intense lightning and heavy rain. So again, uh, those severe thunderstorms pushing off to the east as well. So if you are in the Raleigh area or um, just on these suburbs of Raleigh, I don't expect these storms to be moving in within the next hour or so. So that's kind of a look at the the weather that's going on right now. And I'm going to let James pop up uh, some of our photos from earlier. This was uh, the severe weather that... Um, occurred in western North Carolina. These are all out of Burke County, where I live. Uh, these are some of our followers uh, of the Foothills Weather Network submitting these photos. And uh, this line of thunderstorms really generated out of the uh, the mountains. Once it came out of the mountains, really intensified, uh, created some damaging winds. And as you can see from uh, these uh, pictures, a lot of uh, tree damage, uh, some hail being reported. I didn't see anything larger than quarter size hail. Right here. probably nickel, dime size hail. Uh, but again, those damaging winds uh, really created a lot of damage throughout the county, especially in the southern and eastern portions of the county. So likely a microburst with some um, 60, maybe even 70 mile per hour wind. I know as we uh, look, there's another video that's rolling right now. This was in the uh, the Gaston and Lincoln County area right on the uh, county line. That was a microburst. And uh, we shared the uh, screen grab earlier of uh, the storm that could have called this storm right here uh, could have caused anywhere between 80 to 90 mile per hour winds in the Lincoln and Gaston County area. I know I've been in uh, touch with the Lincoln County emergency manager and they have reported a lot of wind damage in the Southern part of the County. So again, a very active, uh, severe weather day. And uh, I'll bring everyone in here. You know, we kind of joke around here in the North Carolina area, James and South Carolina, uh, Chris and, and Shay and Jared, uh, we were under a marginal threat of severe weather, and it always seems like these marginal days are kind of the uh, the major hitting days severe weather-wise in the Carolinas, and we have once again lived up to that. And James, I know you're in Charlotte. You guys also had these storms move through. Uh, what was it like there?
2: You know, where I live in South Charlotte, just south of the Arboretum near 485, uh, we missed it by like this much. Uh, but we did have the wind and we watched it. I watched it on radar. Like you mentioned, we had those storms that rolled across Gaston County, what kind of went through Center City and then right back out the other side near where the amphitheater is up near Concord. And, you know, we were looking at, you know, sustained 50, 60, 70 mile per hour winds, uh, which of course are are very significant. And The thing that I was trying to remind folks as they were heading out for their evening commute is this is not just your typical summertime afternoon thunderstorm. This is a real, serious, severe thunderstorm. Storm that is causing damage so don't just treat it as yet another thunderstorm this one is you know this is the real deal
0: that's that's right james and uh, numerous uh, damage uh, reports coming all throughout the carolinas and as our our show continues tonight uh, you'll see on the well on my side is the left-hand side i'm not sure what it's like for you guys but we'll be um scrolling the severe thunderstorm warnings uh, watches warnings advisories um as we go throughout the show. So uh, before we uh, get into our uh, topics, which kind of deals, deals with the tropics, I want to toss it to Shea Gibson, who has, ooh, there was some good lightning there in Raleigh. Uh, I want to toss it to uh, Shay Gibson, who is uh, monitoring the tropics right now. Shay, it uh, looks like we've uh, had another name storm since we last was on last week.
3: Yes, we have our fourth name system uh, name system in the Atlantic Basin, Uh, In the far north Atlantic, surprisingly, so let me go ahead and share a screen here. I'm going to go over uh, a little bit of tropics. We've got Hurricane Hector to talk about as well for just a little bit. I don't want to take too much time on the tropics, but here is Tropical Storm Debbie. This was subtropical storm yesterday uh, over slightly cooler waters, and now it is over warmer waters. And the winds are at 40 miles per hour. Its movement is to the northeast at 15 miles per hour. It is expected to become a tropical depression, most likely overnight tonight and into the early morning hours and then eventually into a low and uh, head off towards northeast. Uh, This is the uh, hurricane graveyard, but you can see here in our uh, datascope storm track viewer, this uh, one last warm tongue of water right here that it's it's over. Uh, As it heads over cooler waters, it will lose its tropical characteristics and become a depression, if not just a a low. And uh, so that's pretty much it for Debbie. Very short-lived storm, but it is our fourth name storm in the Atlantic Basin. If uh, we take a look at, let me bring sims satellite into it and uh, boy i had the anna anim- Jeff working on this just a little bit ago you see if this will load if not i'll just close it out and we won't talk about it but there you go there's a there's a little bit better look at it on visible uh satellite imagery from sims tropical and uh not much to talk about with debbie it's gonna continue to uh wear off uh, elsewhere in the atlantic we are looking at the intertropical convergence zone along this area off of Africa. Uh, you can see the Cape Verde islands right here. And um, there's a little bit of a black crease where some of these satellite photos uh, can sort of get uh, pasted together through the world view NASA. But you can see all this dry air coming off of the African coast, which is Saharan dust. And that's that's a continuing issue over the intertropical convergence zone to keep uh, convective activity on the minimum. And tropical activity almost uh, – there, there's basically no tropical activity going on because – There's upper shear and this extremely dry air from the Saharan dust aloft at the mid-levels of the atmosphere. So uh, nothing more in the Atlantic Basin. If we do head over to the, let's see, go back over to eastern North Pacific. And uh, just off the map is John, I'm sorry, Hector. (laughs) John actually uh, ingested Eliana, believe it or not. We had a Fujiwara effect where we had Tropical Storm Eliana, and that got pulled into Hurricane John off of the uh, Mexican coastline. But this right here, this is Hurricane Hector. And let me go back and reload the animation on this one again. It looks like it times out a little bit. Uh, this is still a Category 3 storm, 115 miles per hour. Um, and this is just skirting south of the Big Island of Hawaii. So we're we're seeing some impacts, mostly on the swell activity, some outwards banding moving ashore along the south side with a little bit of winds. And, uh, you know, just, just another reminder that a major category is capable of hitting the Hawaiian islands, even though it's 3000 miles off the coast of the United States way out there. Uh, it, they are still susceptible to seeing these giant cyclones in the Pacific. This is actually central Pacific now. So that's why the Eastern North Pacific's not being tracked by NHC. We don't get a lot of information from that. That usually goes over to uh, JMA, I believe, uh, Jared, do you confirm that? I think JMA at this point,
4: Uh, Just jumping on. (laughs) This is looking at some storms moving into the area, Shay. Sorry about that. That's all right. You're not treating tropics. Um, It it gets a
3: little confusing when you get over to the um, uh, Central Pacific and then into the Western Pacific. Who has the authority on what data that comes out there? Uh, But here's John uh, skirting the uh, Baja coastline. It is uh, moving to the northwest at 13 knots. It is expected to uh, slowly weaken over time as it moves over cooler waters. But there was tropical stormiliana just – to the south of the baja tip uh yesterday and that got pulled right into john a very rare event to happen it was very uh unique to see something like that but that's pretty much it for the tropics uh the the eastern north pacific and central pacific are pretty much on fire right now whereas the atlantic is fairly calm and tranquil there is a, a lot of upper shear there's a lot of dry air not a lot of um conducive environments for any kind of tropical activity we do need to monitor the gulf of Mexico and the southeast coast of the United States, even the Mid-Atlantic, for any fronts that dive down and, and wrap up around the Bermuda High and get kind of stuck. These stalled fronts are, are becoming more and more of a thing. We had we just got out of a very wet spell in the southeast, except now we're starting to get back into that wet spell as Bahamian high pressure is pulling more frontal activity up and around it. So um, we'll be going around the table, back back over to Eric and others to, to talk about the forecast zones where storming is going on. But uh, that's pretty much it for the tropics. Scotty, back to you.
5: Okay, so go ahead, Scotty.
0: <laughs> I was going to give it to you, so go ahead, Ashley.
5: Okay, so I have the honor of introducing our guest. Um, this is a personal friend of mine that I got to meet at the Texas Emergency Management Conference in May. It's going to be Matthew Marchetti. And luckily, he has invented an app that is called CrowdSource Rescue, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. So we want to thank you so much for coming on.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
5: Yeah, so I wanted to just kind of start with some basics to get our our audience familiar with you. So give us some background. Where do you live, education, your interests?
6: Um, Live in Houston, born and raised, went to Baylor where I studied neuroscience and religion, and then I became a programmer, and then now somehow I got wrapped into emergency management. So if you could follow me on that, then you're doing better than I am.
5: Yeah, we all have our unique paths for sure. And that was going to be the next follow-up question was, so I know you're a programmer and you're a diehard coder. So there are some of our panelists that love computer programming. I'm definitely not one of those. I can't stand it. But how did you really get into that, the coding and the disaster management? How did you find that gap?
6: Well, so I started coding actually junior year of college and – and yeah, I just kind of ran with it and really found it interesting and you know, like problem solving and all that. So, I've been doing um, development for uh, eight years or so, but was out rescuing the first day in Harvey um, in a boat. It was really complicated. And so, it was just a very natural progression for us to say, like, me and my business partner sat down and was like, man, this is just, it's so super disorganized. And so, we sat down and made this really simple website. Um, in about six hours in the office, you know, while Harvey is hitting, um, to organize rescues for our neighborhood, um, and put 20 people into it and then woke up the next morning. And actually, am I able to share, um, share my screen?
5: Yeah.
6: You should. Uh, oh. I don't think it's going to cooperate. If y'all give me a brief,
5: it'll be over there on the left
6: There we go. And can y'all see it? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Damn thing. Technical difficulties. Oh, well. Um, Well, the next morning, and the map looks like that, and we say, oh, my God. (laughs) What are we going to do about this? Because we have three votes. And... um, But anyways, luckily for us, uh, a whole bunch of rescuers also started getting on the site. And so, um, you know, it started initially just in Houston, people with their kayaks and people with their um, canoes or whatever they had and started getting onto the site and connecting um, civilian rescuers with people who needed to be rescued. And then just went, you know, um, this was Monday morning at about 9 a.m. And then by Tuesday afternoon site looked like that. Eventually it would look like this. Um and so uh just brief overview. I mean it did about thirty to thirty five thousand rescues in Harvey. Um on the books we had about twelve thousand volunteers, but at any given point there's about sixty thousand people on the site according to Google Analytics. So a ton of people, a ton of spontaneous volunteers. And again just started from this uh random little website that we made just for our neighborhood.
5: Yeah. So kind of to back up to that moment. So if I understand you correctly, you are naturally a coder. You saw that there was a lot of issues with organizing rescues because that Saturday night they had a ton of rainfall and they they were desperate for boating rescues. So you were able to code on the spot, a simple app to basically allow people who had boats to rescue people, and then people who needed rescue to be rescued, right?
6: Yeah, something like that. Um, it worked kind of like Uber. Um, and real simple. I mean, the site had literally three buttons. Um, and um, if you needed to be rescued, you'd fill out a form. And if you could help rescue, you'd fill out another form. And then after you filled out that form, you'd go to the rescue map, and it would just connect to you. You'd be able to like pull up a list of the people closest to you. Uh, you'd go, you'd get in your boat, you'd grab them, you'd evacuate them to dry land and then mark them safe. And then just repeat that process about 25,000 times.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. So another question too. So you said your, um, your rescuers grew from hour to hour, day to day. How are you able to, you know, get that word out about that app?
6: A lot of it, uh, so first off, I don't really know how it went, you know, how it got so big overnight because we made it in about six hours, like I said, on Sunday night. I texted, you know, maybe 10 or 15 friends and I put it on my personal page on my Facebook and it's not, I mean, it didn't go crazy over there. But I think some friends told some other friends, told some other friends um, and then it just started getting bigger from there. But then by about Monday afternoon, it started going really big. So, um, I mean, it went, you know, viral in a big way in that, um, you know, I think I don't know really who kicked it off, but by the end of it, one of the big Cajun Navy page posted it as the default so that if you messaged the Cajun Navy, it would respond back like, Hey, fill out this form. Um, And um, you know, JJ Watt tweeted it out a couple big, Houston Rappers tweeted it out, and so it just went, you know, bonkers from there.
3: What about emergency, like, emergency management fire departments? Um, sort of. local National Weather Service, did, did any of the, the local government authorities start to get involved yeah. with that and, and uh, share it as well?
6: Unofficially. No, yeah, they didn't share it. Um, but uh, unofficially, they were paying attention to it. And so, like, we would um, post, we had this idea, you know, if, there was imminent drowning, and it was all self-reported. Um, we'd post about that on the app and then post it out on Facebook, and a lot of times um, the Coast Guard and National Guard has paid attention to that page and would call that person immediately to try and get them help. Um, so there's, after the fact, like we find out, like, you know, FEMA task force is using it and paying attention to it, uh, HFD is using it, um, all sorts of emergency management groups are using it. Um, which incidentally is why we try and run around and meet with every single emergency management agency that we can now to try and get better integration of the app um, in the actual EOC level, because that was a huge pitfall this is that you can't get anybody from emergency management or a first responder on the phone. I mean, they're, to be fair, they're a little busy, <laughs> you know, one of the biggest disasters of all time, but uh, and, I mean, on the flip side, I, I told a joke one time to Harris County. It was like, you know, I called you guys. What were you doing? Like, were you busy or something? And then they immediately responded. "Is like, we were calling you too, you idiot. Like, okay, yeah, to be fair. Um, uh, yeah.
5: So just to kind of jump into this discussion, I think you brought up a valid point about asking about the emergency management agencies and NWS and stuff. And something kind of to bring up for discussion is that, It's very interesting to see EM's perspectives on when locals kind of gather rounds and start helping as spontaneous volunteers. Some EMs kind of embrace it and some do not like it because of the liability issues, um, not really knowing who's trained and who's not. So that's definitely a struggle I'm sure that you kind of had to put up with in the moment, correct?
6: During, we didn't know any better. now we do a lot of that so everybody's background check they're vetted um uh we work under ICS systems and you know again we try to work directly with an emergency management agency in their spontaneous volunteers because what we don't want to have happen is spontaneous volunteers not be included or create a secondary disaster after the initial disaster in that's kind of the playbook right now because there's not, I mean, spontaneous volunteers are just notoriously underutilized in disaster because there's not really a way to do it. Um, so what we try to do is work with emergency managers and work with emergency management agencies and kind of calm some of those fears down and say like, look, spontaneous volunteers are not the worst thing in the world. In fact, they're actually pretty great. As long as you give them a little bit of communication and help organize them effectively.
3: That was going to be something I wanted to ask you about is, you know, that's, it's a good point. It's a fine line between, you know, people coming together to help out with immediate assistance versus waiting. They don't know when or what communications on the down. All they know is they need help. Here's someone to help. They've got an organization of some sort to get some boats out to help people. Then the fine line is where do you cross with the, you know, the the emergency management that, that is already in place, even like with FEMA, the, the local municipalities. So you, you seem to bridge that gap, but what does that say for local volunteers across the country? Is this something that you want to sort of uh, go national
6: with? Yeah. And we're doing a lot of that. I mean, certainly like most of our contacts are in, um, uh, in the Gulf Coast areas like uh, Texas, Florida, Alabama. But uh, we've been working with Palo Alto and San Francisco a little bit, in California um, have played around up in New York, in Pennsylvania. And a lot of it is trying to talk with, you know, basically any emergency management official who will listen and um, create some of those, um, you know, in a perfect world, it's direct integration into the EOC. Um, and it's working alongside, you um, first responders, because this is taking a little bit of a step back. Um, I'm always very careful. Like, for instance, the title of this podcast is Managing Spontaneous Volunteers. That terminology, like we try to like use the term collaboration of volunteers, because the thing is, they're coming anyways. Like there's no real management of them. It's either you integrate with them or they're just going to do their own thing. Um, unless you declare martial law or something like um, disaster after disaster, you will see these spontaneous volunteers just come out from the woodworks and say, I want to help. I want to do something. Um, And if we don't integrate them well into an EOC or into a response plan, then a lot of times they're out doing something without communication or they're going into unsafe areas or they're not, you know, we're not utilizing them effectively throughout the response. Um, I don't know if that makes sense,
1: but I I, I got something I could jump in here, you know, as far as, I don't know if we talked before the show, I I spent 15 years as a firefighter and actually a swift water rescue instructor, uh, all that good stuff. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's really important, bridging the gap between the local responders on the ground and emergency management, like with Ashley, is being able to, uh, you know, with press releases and media releases, is being able to get the word out to the spontaneous volunteers, you know, where where would a good point to to go be, you know, that, stuff of that nature.
6: Yeah, um, absolutely. Because that's um, that's incidentally why we wanted to work with EOCs, too, because during um uh, tens of thousands of volunteers were running off this app run by a 27-year-old. who I was an EMT in college, but that doesn't really give me the authority to run, you know, this many people. I'm, I'm basically making some of this stuff up as I go along. Um, but being able to... Work alongside emergency management and kind of have that real time info. And I think it's a two way street too, because um, during the Monday of Harvey, um, 911 was down, and that, which is a very scary thought, very terrifying, but you people were calling into 911 and not getting a hold of somebody for two or three hours. What do you do then? And so this system kicked on as sort of like an alternative system. And again, it's not ideal. Um, it's not perfect, but when some of the, like when we're in that scenario, when a lot of these systems have failed, like, what are you going to do? Um, and I think a lot of it came onto to civilians um, and onto systems like these and basically spontaneous volunteers just going out there and helping. But um yeah, um at so during Harvey, HFD had about sixteen boats. Um, meanwhile we're tracking about five thousand. Like there comes a point like, you know, day by day, first responders and firefighters are absolutely equipped to handle these disasters. But when we get into this disaster scenario, particularly like with these massive superstorms like Harvey and Irma, there hits a point where first responders are overwhelmed. And so you have to rely on these spontaneous volunteers and if you're not communicating with them and if there's not like two way communication back and forth, like it just becomes a big mess. Um, so we try to use the app for, um, we GPS track, um, every volunteer, they have the ability to self dispatch or dispatch under an existing ICS system. Um, we, you know, you can get clever and you can make geofences. fences. So like, for instance, we can drop a geofence on um, like a down power line or we can, you know, um, it, and it can get as involved as you want. So like you create a whole geofence and every time a doctor wanders into that geofence, it automatically sends them to the nearest hospital because they need volunteers or however you want to set it up, um, it can be done. Um, the key point that we always try to push is it does need to be done though because like these... Spontaneous volunteers come, and uh, again, they're like, uh, they just need a little bit of communication, a little bit of organization, and they can do tremendous stuff for response. Um,
5: Yeah, and just to jump in with my perspective, I think that emergency managers know this. They know that, you know, our citizens are going to be the first responders. We have the first responders, but the first response is always going to be your neighbor. And that's why FEMA has been pushing that a lot because we want that. You know, we want our neighbors to help neighbors and we want to give that training to neighborhoods, which is why you see a lot of CERT team, which is community emergency response teams popping up in neighborhoods, training to be that response. So we know that we need to take uh, take a hold of those volunteers and kind of direct them. It's just, it's a very large task to take on, especially when you're trying to manage everything else. So I would say the two... Biggest issues with disasters and managing them is going to be your spontaneous volunteers, because like you said, you're going to have thousands of them. And two is going to be your donations. Yeah, Everybody wants to donate. So you you kind of think that you might just get a handful of things, but you're going to have truckloads to where you, you don't know what to even do with it. So I really like um, the idea of making these apps and, and making management easier for us. And I think that through time, emergency managers will
6: kind of grab hold on that. Hopefully, yeah. And the biggest concern, because I, I think most people get it too, and well, yeah, most people. Spontaneous volunteers sometimes is kind of a dirty word in emergency management, but I think most people, <laughs> particularly after Harvey, are realizing like, yeah, like there has to be integration efforts with spontaneous volunteers, um, and in Sorry, I just blanked <laughs> That's not my rant and then I just lost track.
5: But I mean, yeah, so just, I think it's really important. Um, another question I'd say, were you able to communicate with any of the people who signed up to rescue anybody? Like any of the people who said, yes, I have a boat. I'm going to sign up to rescue and then rescued people. Were you able oh, to get like yeah. a after action from them about their experience?
6: yeah sort of i mean we keep in touch with a lot of them like um because we used you know we communicated with a lot of them or uh, through irma and maria uh, we found that a lot of the same people were um you know they helped rescue and harvey and they were just a regular houston citizen and then irma happened and they said you know what i'm gonna go and i'm gonna get my boat and i'm gonna help some people in irma because we just had the cajun navy come in here and help us and it feels like the right thing to do and Maria. So we have like kind of a core group of volunteers that we work with a lot. Um, And yeah, all day, every day, it feels like after action reports because we're talking about Harvey a lot, but um, nothing really officially. um, So.
5: Well, I'm just kind of interested to know if anybody got any of that pushback because you always kind of hear like some first responders don't, They don't like guys out there getting in the way or things like that. Like I said, it's all about being concerned about who's trained and who's qualified and who might be interfering with the rescue efforts because the EOC is directing rescue. um, But these groups that are out there might not be directed by us. So they might be getting in the way. So I was wondering if there was any like negativity on the ground level.
6: There was um, both positive and negative. Um, So you know, there were certain points of Harvey where um, Liberty, Texas, right now, I was talking to the EMC at Tiedem. Um, They had 30 houses that flooded. That's it. But they probably had 250 boats a day. And so by the end of it, they were just telling people, like, no, get out of here. Go away. Um, probably not in the nicest way, but um, they didn't need any boats. Uh, but then there are other times where it's like, and this is times where we don't really want to see where like people did need help, but because these, they, these volunteers weren't worked into the existing response plan. They were basically turned away, Um, you know, uh, just in certain areas um, in the Harvey disaster zone where the first responders didn't necessarily have resources in that area. There were volunteers there ready to help, but it, it gets really tricky really quickly. And I don't begrudge those first responders. It It's a really hard call to make. Um, and that's like we, again, but stuff like that is why we have just set out like just on the war path for the last nine months. Well, I guess coming up on a year now um, to try and make sure stuff like that doesn't happen again. And so, A lot of what calms emergency managers' fears down is um, background checking and vetting um, and, you know, being able to, like, flesh out their training. So, for instance, if somebody comes and says, oh, I'm a doctor, we're able to, you know, take their name and their address and look up, like, oh, yeah, they are a doctor. They've had their license for 20 years. They've had no violations, blah, blah, blah. And we can put them in a specific group that now... The emergency managers and first responders can work with, you know, for instance, in this case, these physicians directly or they are able to say, like, we have a flat bottom boat or I have a chainsaw or I have, you know, a truck that's three inches or it's lifted three feet. And we're taking these resources and we're taking these certifications and we're, um, you know, handing them over and working alongside emergency management so that we can use those resources and certifications in, a, in an easier way. Because, to be clear, like I get it on the emergency management side, like the thought of just, you know, 5,000 people, you have no idea who they are, what they are, what they're doing, where they're at and what they're up to. Like, yeah, I mean, that's something to be concerned with, but we, we try to play like a compromising role and saying like, the problem is a lot of times those guys are coming out there anyways. So, um, We've never really seen. I mean, all in all, like most of them have been pretty receptive. Um, but we're trying to encourage that more and, and have um, better relationships. You know, even better relationships next time.
7: Good. That's all, all really interesting stuff. You you mentioned that um, obviously Harvey is kind of where this got started and really took off pretty quickly. And then and then you mentioned Maria as a um, another situation that was used in what what other. Um, disasters or responses has uh, has your app come in handy on that's uh, that's been pretty valuable so we made harvey again like there was no master
6: plan there <laughs> just made it for you know our church basically and then it blew up and so after harvey it, it, we said well okay oh well, that was a interesting week but then pretty much ready to move on with our lives get back to normal but then irma happened and then maria and then the California wildfires, and Mexico City earthquakes. And, you know, eventually, like, somewhere along the way, we just start to realize, like, oh, I guess this is just our life now. Um, but, yeah, so the three major name storms um, last year were the big ones. But then we redeveloped the app in January. Um, because I guess something to remember is, like, from basically – you know, August 27th to about mid-December, we were just in full-on response mode, and it was just, you know, we built the first initial app in about six hours, and then just started piling stuff on top of it until December 15th. Um, But then in January, we decided to, you know, um, when we're not making it in the middle of a storm, kind of rethink the whole thing and how we would build it and and work a lot of the new experiences and knowledge into it. And that has been used so far in the Ellicott city flooding, um, a little bit in some of the wildfires, um, that have been going on. And then, um, the big one would be the South Texas floods from July where we were tracking rescuers and, and helping dispatch those. So, uh, and one quick note, because I'm sure it'll come up, on the wildfires, we are absolutely not, you know, encouraging self-dispatched um, firefighters or anything like that. It's actually a lot of times in the reverse in that we are um, essentially capturing some of these spontaneous volunteers who have a great heart but don't necessarily realize the hazards involved with the firefighter, I mean, with, with uh, wildfires. And um, in that, we are giving them alternatives and saying, like, hey, here's a way to do donations management or here's a way to do shelters management. You can do it from the safety of your house with a smartphone. Um, So although more recently, though, we have been kind of creeping into some of the evacuation stuff, but trying to do that alongside, you know, first responders. Um, So like, for instance, if somebody notes that, um, yeah, if if somebody elderly needs a little bit of help, you know, trying to connect them with a neighbor who can help, um, help them during a mandatory evacuation but um, nothing on the actual response side obviously
4: so did you run into any uh, load problems after things went viral so you <clears> stand <throat> up this website <throat> and, uh, and, and you probably don't have time for capacity planning
6: uh, we just point. kept increasing the node uh, during Harvey <laughs> um, <laughs> So until so we max that out, uh, yeah, that was a, an interesting battle trying to keep that thing up uh, during Harvey. But it was also just, it was a very real moment, too, because it's um, the stakes were very high in that, like, if we screw this up, you know, people are actively using this to dispatch for high water rescues. So don't screw it up, basically. Uh, that was some, a very real moment in my life um so it would go down every now and then because it would get overloaded and then we would just try to bring it up as quickly as possible i think the longest that we were down was about 17 minutes um and we came back up but it would blip out every now and then for um, a couple minutes and we'd get about a million phone calls and text messages people would tell us um also every time we would make a change um without telling anybody or if it messed something up we'd find out it was a very real and very live and very lively uh, coding environment. It was kind of like nothing I've ever experienced and hopefully I never do again. But um, since then we went on to AWS, everything's all auto scaled um, and uh, redundant. And it's pretty hard to take down now. Well, so far we've been good. Um, So actually uh, before Irma, Harvard actually stepped in and helped us. They, put us on their servers um, for Irma and through Maria. And then we went and uh, moved on to our own, have it all auto-scaled out.
3: What do you think about cloud servers? Do you think those would be a little bit more helpful in this kind of situation? With, with Yeah, that's, like, that's what we're on. Water? Okay,
6: okay. Yeah, AWS. So it's it's a cloud server, and um, it basically just day by day consider it, you know, uh, what's a good way to put it? day by day. I mean, we don't have that many people getting on the site, like, you know, maybe a hundred a day or something like that. I mean, just not a tremendous amount, but as that demand gets bigger and bigger, it opens up another server and another server and another server until, you know, it's not at capacity anymore. And so, um, you know, we'll test it to have half a million simultaneous connections, which is obscene. It's ridiculous. Um, I, I can't think of a disaster where we would have half a million simultaneous connections, but, um, it's meant to go up and down as demand goes up and down. And it's, you know, (laughs) in our insurance filing, they were like, do you ever test for disasters? It's like, oh my God, you have no idea. Uh, So uh, yeah, it's uh, redundant out the wazoo. And so we even have plans, for instance, like let's say that something happens in um, East Virginia where the Amazon clouds are. Uh, well, then our server would kick on to Seattle where they have another cluster. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of plans um, for just keeping the site up and redundant.
3: This question is going to go to Ashley and Chris. And, um, you know, this this kind of program seems like it's just extremely invaluable on so many levels. Do you think it's something that, uh, you know, when when folks come together and they create something that's, really unique is what's the, ch- what are the chances of emergency management and government and FEMA, whoever to sort of ingest this product into what they have going on to enhance their reliability and their efforts? Well, you want to take it out, there. It don't matter.
5: I, I was going to ask whoever you. wants me. to go first? I'll go, yeah. first. I'll go first. So <laughs> I think that um, we love this stuff. Well, I do. I, I love when people on the outside are always trying to think of ways to improve how we're doing things it gives us a fresh look, especially from people with different backgrounds. That's why we like to talk to our SMEs, or we call them subject matter experts, our meteorologists, we get opinions from them, our coders. So I'm very excited about programs like this. Uh, I do think that because our, our program has a group of people that have been doing things the same way for a long time in a lot of situations. So there is a little bit of pushback when we start to have new things. But I think that He's doing a good start, um, going around, uh, doing presentations, reaching out because he actually reached out to me, called me, gave him or gave me all of his stuff and, and explained what his process was. So I think if if people have these kinds of ideas to help us and they continue to reach out into the EM world and make connections with us, I think we could really adapt to some of these fresh ideas from the outside.
6: Yeah, we have been on the war path, <laughs> um, just kicking down doors, trying to. But for the most part, it's been really receptive. Um, we are in a really good position because uh, most EMs, even if they want nothing to do with spontaneous volunteers, we say, hey, we rescued about 30,000 you know, people with this website we made in six hours. Most people are like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll give that 30 minutes. Like, I'll hear what they have to say. Um And we can basically like kind of get our foot in the door and go from there. Um, It, it does get really tricky working with the liability side of things. I think most emergency managers um, either can be convinced into it. If not already outright agree, like, yeah, we got to do something with spontaneous volunteers and we got to use them in a disaster. Um, But once like, you know, ink to pen, like figuring out some of the liability stuff, it, Yeah, there are concerns around there, but most of it is also manageable and most of it's, you know, mitigatable.
5: Well, yeah, and I will add to that. um, Even me as an EM, I am very concerned about um, liability, (laughs) even with your cert teams. So we train certs or the the civilian response team. We train them in triage, uh, first aid, search and rescue, things like that. And we're working with them, but it's still always a little uncertain how they're going to react when they're actually thrown in the middle of a a battle scene out there in a disaster. And we just, liability is tricky. So I think that these ideas are good, like I was saying, but we do need to make sure that there's the proper vetting and training. And that's why I was going to ask you, are you ever going to consider maybe going the route of adding training to your program?
6: Absolutely not. Uh, which is probably not the answer that y'all wanted to hear, but we are very um, spontaneous means spontaneous. The So our, let me put it another way. We, um, Your mom, your sister, whoever, um, collapses. Who do you call? You call 911. Who do you want to come? An ambulance. What if there's not an ambulance? Do you want to wait three and a half hours for an ambulance, or do you want to put it in the back of a pickup truck and take 20 minutes to the units. Well, uh, probably do the pickup truck. Um, I was sitting with the director of public safety for uh, Houston. So he's over fire. He's over police. He's over the OEM. And he looks me in the eye and he says, during Harvey, were there's there ever a moment where, where I did what I just described, like where y'all recommended just putting patients in the back of pickup trucks and taking them to the hospital. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I mean, I just lie. Right. Say, no, of course not. We never did that. Like, absolutely not. But I'd say the truth. And I was like, yeah, we might've done that once or twice or like 40 times. And he brought up a good point where it's like, you know, first I was like, cause I told him, it's was like, I don't know. I kind of thought about lying, but yeah, we did do that. But the point is like, it's not a perfect ideal solution, but what are your alternatives? Um city of Houston literally had 16 boats. Um, you know, maybe there were 100 throughout the county. And there's a tremendous, I mean, unprecedented amount of mutual aid um, came to Harvey. But 95% of it are stuck in College Station. Like, there hits this point where you don't really have a lot of good options. And so what we are ultimately, like, saying is, like, look, this is not perfect. It's not ideal. It also, this is my what it might come to is you're stuck into a position where you're using spontaneous volunteers. Um, So at that, though, we really try to stage it out. So everybody's background checked, and that's um, criminal, sexual, all 50 states, international. um, Even their associates can be checked if we need to. Then everybody um, is sorted into their levels of certification. So we have a lot of people who are – You know, we have people who are swift water rescuers at another station. And so we absolutely pair them with the firefighter, you know, with the the sponsoring agencies. We have doctors. We have, you know, in Marina, we had somebody with a helicopter and obviously their pilot's license. And so the actual algorithm works by trying to match them with the best um, rescuer. But we still like to remind people of like, look, at the end of the day, it might come down to Joe Blow is putting somebody in to um, the back of their pickup and he's taking them to the hospital. Now, obviously, we have already talked to the EMs and we've already talked to the fire departments and we've looked for doctors and we've looked for nurses. Like, we're not just going to immediately jump to that option. Like, you try to exhaust all the available options, but at the end of the day, spontaneous means spontaneous. Um, Our options are all kind of bad. Um, So we could do nothing or... We could work with these spontaneous volunteers um, to try and help people in this middle of this well, disaster,
5: yeah, and I was gonna say, I think um kind of separating volunteers based on the training they might already have, so, like you said, if you have a doctor sign up, put them on the doctor list, or if you have someone who's already done search and rescue training or maybe they're a volunteer firefighter, put them on that list I think yeah, like and classifying so, and them, yeah, really we, would
6: we be do helpful. do that um, and again, we try and walk down. The options of, um, you know, we will, and, but coincidentally, like, you also, like, when we use systems like this, um, we find we're also able to walk up options. So we were getting some really serious calls, Uh, you know, people caught in Swiftwater Rapids on the roof of their house. And I love our volunteers. Our volunteers are amazing. Not a single one of them had access to a Black Hawk helicopter. And so, when we use like these alternative 911 systems, we're also able to send stuff up of like ideally able to kind of um, categories out various um, uh, various types of calls. And so that the more skilled rescue and response stuff is going to the first responders who are trained and they are equipped and um, they're, they're more skilled. And that way we can send, um, you know, less skilled and less trained and less equipped volunteers to some of the less serious stuff. And that gives us so much more efficiency in the middle of a disaster. Um, that way, we're not having to sit there and pick and choose, or worse, send really skilled and really well trained and really well equipped firefighters to something that could be handled with a flat bottom boat.
5: Oh yeah, definitely. I want to go ahead and give Chris an opportunity to give his insight because, <laughs> like he was saying, he is a first—he was a first responder at one point, so he's got yeah. that level. So, what do you yeah. think?
1: Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the uh, idea is good, but, uh, like you said, actually, you know, the biggest thing I think would be meet with emergency responders or uh, emergency managers and being able to, you know, lay out the groundworks, especially with their emergency response plans and stuff of that nature. That way that, you know, there's an expectation from both sides uh, before, you know, a disaster may happen of, you know, you know, if this happens, this is what we can do, or this is what we may could do. And, uh, you know, looking at it from, I guess, a boots on the ground perspective, uh, it's that's tough. And and the reason I say it's tough is because in the water rescue environment, the number two, the number two uh, leading cause of death in the water rescue environment is the would be rescuer. You know, the good Samaritan, that means all the best in the world that wants to go out and help everyone. But, uh, you know, doesn't have that training. And and, you know, that that can be difficult to manage sometimes, especially for you know, someone like myself, you know, running a boat crew through a neighborhood of you know flooded homes, which we did in 2015 uh, during the flooding in Columbia, South. You know, here in Columbia, uh, you know, just trying to manage who is in the area. If that makes any sense, you know, we're we're going door to door, house to house. You know, literally going through people's homes to make sure they're out of them. And uh, once we were able to, you know, go through each individual house, we would call back into. Uh, you know, the instant commander and, you know, they basically checked the house off the list per se, you know, that house has been uh, searched. It's clear. And so, you know, by doing that, we were able to, you know, systematically go through entire neighborhoods and, you know, know without a shadow of a doubt that there's no one else there, you know, we're, we're good. And so the cautious part us, I, I guess would be, you know, having these would be rescuers and, you know, people of that nature of volunteers that want to go out and help, you know, going back behind us, something we may have already searched, you know, something of that nature and then getting in some trouble and, you know, nobody really might ever know. Uh, it could just be a really tough situation.
6: Yeah. And this is where, um, so on our side, like our activation rules are basically one, our volunteers are already responding. Like we're not calling for the volunteers directly. Like the volunteers are already responding. And two, um, are they actually needed? Like, is this an incident where first, you know, first responders are truly overwhelmed? Uh, And that is rare. I mean, that is extremely rare, but it happens and we have to be aware of the reality that that happens sometimes. And that's when we really come into play uh, is, um, you know, kind of making this mesh and making this connection between the two Um, because um, you know, for instance, like living at the actual EOC level and being able to to call back to the volunteers like, Hey, we don't need to go to these neighborhoods or, you know, calling stuff up and saying like, yeah, actually uh, a lot of people are checking in over here Um, because that, um, yeah. I mean, we had like, so we didn't directly, but there were rescuers who died um, during Harvey and they weren't using our app. And that, I mean, that kills me um, that, that happened. It's, it's, truly preventable and i mean to be clear like um if they were using the harvey app i mean i I think it's just coincidence that they weren't using the harvey app i don't think our harvey app would have stopped um stopped them from doing stuff but that is also like why we have implemented some of the new stuff that we have and why we try to you know you know, geo fences, for instance, and saying, here's where volunteers can go in, or here's where first responders can go in, or you have to have this certain level of certification to respond to this certain call. Trying to figure out some of that stuff so we don't have
1: rescuers dying.
6: Um, yeah. Yeah. It totally makes and,
1: sense. Like, it, like I was going to say, you know, 2015, uh, we were overwhelmed here locally with our resources also. We didn't have enough boats to, to get into all yeah. the neighborhoods that had four to six feet of water in them. And uh, we had two-story houses with water up to the bottom of the eaves of the roofs. I mean, it was, it was a really, really bad, bad situation. But uh, thanks to those, you know, the local volunteer responders that did have boats, we were able to, you know, work with those folks and commandeer their boats. Uh, And, you know, they would either ride with us or we would take their boat and we'd bring it back to them when we got done with it. And everybody was all happy. And it worked out great. You know, the biggest thing that uh, all firefighters, especially on the, uh, urban search and rescue side, the technical rescue side, which is something I got a huge passion for, and, and you know, did it for a long time. Is you're you're taught from day one that you're never going to stop the civilian rescuer, you know, the volunteer, and uh, they're they're coming. Uh, it's just how do you manage them best, and that's where Ashley and emergency managers fall in to be able to work with agencies to yeah. you know, develop the emergency response plans and such. And- yeah,
5: and just to jump in on that real fast, and that's why I kind of really like the idea of this app, is because like you said they're coming, we're not going to stop them and there's no way to organize them. So if there's a way that we can actually keep track of them and figure out where they're going and stuff, we can actually work them into our plan a little bit. Even if we don't take them on and we don't want to touch that liability, at least we know where they are and they have a direction. Because as of right now, if we were to have a huge disaster right here in my jurisdiction, I have zero idea of how many people are going to show up, where they're going to go or anything like well, that. So You also know I, yeah, I I like the idea of being able to look on a map and see, okay, you know, I've got all these people here and being able to know where they are. So, um,
6: we are also always very fond of saying we're not spontaneous volunteer management because, you know, can't even manage them sometimes. Like we, we don't have a special spontaneous volunteer one that we wave and they have to listen to us. Like they can tell us to go to hell too. Um, You know, we're spontaneous volunteer collaboration um, because they are coming regardless. So you might as well, um, you might as well coordinate with them and you might as well use them because, and I truly believe this to my core, like when we integrate in, you know, first off, I think spontaneous volunteers are the quickest way to an efficient response, a just response. And when we integrate in with EOCs and we work alongside first responders. I mean, the whole community does better. The volunteers are safer. The first responders are more efficient. Um, there's a more equitable response, um, you know, nothing. When we, we start having these conversations, particularly with emergency managers, I mean, everything goes better uh, because otherwise we're left back to square one where these spontaneous volunteers, like they're still responding. Um, but they have no communication. They don't know where to go. They're getting unsafe spots or they're, you know, like the biggest problem uh, in Harvey was we were getting stuff before the first responders. I mean, we being spontaneous volunteers. Um, And so first responders are just running around wasting their times on all these calls that volunteers already got. Um, So if anything, if nothing else, just kind of having that communication of like, here's what a volunteer went and did. And they, they actually already got this person. Here's a picture of this person. We were able to GPS track that volunteer all the way to their house and then GPS track them all the way to the shelter. And again, so it's not, it's not that an emergency management official or first responding agency has taken ownership and dispatched that volunteer to that one house. It's just saying like, Hey, just as a matter of fact, this already happened. So take it or leave it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's a very different conversation from liability wise because it's, It's um, giving you information of stuff that is happening regardless. And so you haven't actually dispatched that volunteer, and so you don't have to take liability of that volunteer. Um, But it, um, yeah.
5: Yeah. So I think we're approaching our hour. I'm going to go ahead and ask our panelists if we have any last questions before we start to wrap this up.
2: Yeah, I've got one real fast. Uh, Matthew, when you look ahead to tomorrow's disaster, we don't know what it's going to be yet, but... Uh, today, are you taking volunteers right now in like a screening staging capacity?
6: Absolutely. Crowdsourcerescue.com slash user slash ad. We will take anybody and everybody with a heartbeat because you don't know what you need. There we go. That, that answers my question. I'm done, Ashley.
5: Okay. Any other questions?
3: Uh, thanks a lot for, for developing uh, Above and Beyond app to uh, locate folks that are in, in distress or in need. I think it's fantastic seeing the uh, sort of the the private, just the private sector, the public, you know, sort of rising up and and meeting the challenges of of, uh, today's society, especially with populations growing at such immense rates. It's great to see that people out there care and uh, develop things like this to uh, sort of help out with the cause. Uh, You know, everything's evolving together. So uh, hats off to you, Matthew. Great job.
6: Yeah, well, all accidental, but thank you. (laughs)
5: Yeah. So with that, I'm
0: going to pass it back to Scotty. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Matthew. We appreciate that. Great information. In fact, I just downloaded the app on my phone. <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys can as well get the uh, the information. So we appreciate that. I know, guys, we're after nine fifteen. Do you guys want to do tweets of the week, or do we want to skip that portion of the show?
1: No answer. I've got. I've got one.
0: <laughs> All right.
6: Well, okay. Go ahead, Chris. We'll, uh, All right. I'll, I'll bring it in
1: we'll here. It I'll up. bring Twitter with me if nobody else wants to. Let's share, let's share my screen here. All righty. So mine comes from Matt Makins, a uh, meteorologist in Denver of the Holy fire in the Trabuco Canyon, California uh, showing the 747 global super tanker doing a 19,000 gallon fire retardant drop on the fire line. Uh, Brand new aircraft, I think it's the second year they're using it out there. It's been repurposed from its days hauling passengers. Now it's fighting fires, and I think that's a pretty pretty awesome.
0: <clears throat> that is pretty cool. And, in fact, I saw a video. I, it may have not been legit. Uh, I may have not uh, viewed it the right way. But actually a video, I think it was in California, of these folks who are actually standing a little too close to the retardant that was dropped. and. Kind of got video of that, so uh, that was interesting too. You always wonder what it's like to be on one of those those planes. Yeah, I would
1: so, I would not want to be on the receiving end of that fire charge. <laughs>
0: I, it was, I believe, it, it was, the video said it was somewhere in California. It may not be legit. I may have been jipped, but, uh, but I just see that video. Uh, anybody else have a tweet of the week, Eric? I, I don't yeah. have oh, oh, go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. I'm Eric.
7: sorry. I want. I'd like to follow right on to the one that uh, Chris just presented because this is very similar and right line with the discussion we're having tonight. These are photos from uh, Kent Porter, who has taken some phenomenal uh, photography of the wildfires in California. This is the Mendocino um, fire that is. Uh, now the largest in California state history, about 33 percent larger than the city of Memphis proper, which is just—if you put it in context—is phenomenal. But um, some great pictures, and there is the um, there is that super tanker in a uh, in a static photo. There, just a phenomenal picture that it was taken.
3: Hey, uh, Eric, we don't uh, see yours have on you screen.
7: I have screen share on. I thought, let me try again uh but we
3: love how you're describing it though
7: okay well here we go let's see okay you see it now oh, that's perfect yep. oh, yeah there you go there's the super tanker <clears throat> um this was the first picture that i showed coming over the crest of the ridge there um that really good one the super tanker this is uh up close um just just really really fascinating pictures so you you uh you don't realize what kind of devastation these things cause until you figure out that basically every every place that was involved in one of these was basically wiped out like an EF five tornado and it, you know, left no left no prisoners. So pretty phenomenal.
0: I believe I heard this was the largest um fire in the state of California.
7: On I think that that's right now, yep. Yeah, that's correct. Um,
0: so yeah, um James, I know you were do you have a tweet or
7: it's not a tweet, but I
2: wanted to call reference to something that if you go back and you watch or listen to last week's show, at the very beginning of the show, one of the very first things that Chris Jackson says is, I just came in from storm chasing, I literally just sat down. What we found out after the fact, is it okay if I share this, Chris? Or your oh, yeah,
1: go ahead. Go right ahead.
2: We, we, did show, we did the show, we did severe weather, and then at the end of the severe weather coverage, we weren't live anymore, but we were all still connected. And we looked down at the thumbnails, and Chris is talking to a bunch of police officers. <laughs> we're like, what is happening? Chris? Yes. What did you do?
1: I left my truck door open, and uh, my concerned neighbor thought uh, something may have happened because it had been two hours and my truck door was still open. So she <laughs> she called the police department. <laughs>
0: That's
1: too funny. And it uh, turns out I know all the guys, and uh, you know we sat there and had a little chit-chat and a good little conversation in the front yard.
2: <laughs> I just I just had uh, to bring that up because yeah, looking back awesome. on it, it is now, it's now funny. I think it was always funny. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm going to share my tweet of the week. Uh, this is from Chris White, Chris V-A-W-X. Uh, he's wow. promoting the Mid-Atlantic ChaserCon, and actually we're going to have Chris on in October. Uh, he's kind of spearheading this uh, this conference that's going to take place in Richmond, Virginia in October, October 27th. A great um, lineup of speakers. Uh, Chris actually gave us a shout-out on the Weather Brains, talking about ChaserCon and how uh, – he was going to be coming on Carolina Weather Group to talk about it, so I wanted to do a little promoting for Chris and something we're going to continue to promote from now until October 27th. But uh, this is the Mid Atlantic Chaser Con. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make it, but uh, I know that Ricky uh, Ricky Matthews has interest in it. Chris, I don't even know if you knew that this existed, but uh, this I've been might- seeing,
1: I've been seeing it promoted across Twitter a little bit. You know, I haven't looked into it too much, but definitely interested. I mean, Richmond, what eight hour drive?
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is a Saturday afternoon at the Science Museum of Virginia in Richmond. So uh, go out, uh, check out the webpage there. And uh, this might be something, uh, if you're a weather uh, enthusiast or maybe a storm chaser, all kinds of good stuff going to be taking place there in Richmond. So uh, that is my tweet of the week. Uh, the Mid-Atlantic Chaser Con on August tw- or October twenty seventh, 2018 in Richmond, Virginia. We're going to again have Chris White on with us on October the 10th to talk about the lineup and kind of what inspired him to want to put this uh, conference together. So that is my tweet.
2: Of and Scotty, speaking of science fairs. Yes. I think we have one to talk about as well, too. Do you have the information handy?
0: I know it's uh, August 25th at the Schneel Museum in Gastonia, North Carolina, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, this is uh, called um, – Oh, my goodness. I forgot the name of the event. Oh, Weatherproof. Weatherproof, yes, the Weatherproof event. Uh, James Briarton and all his finest will be there. Myself, uh, Shay Gibson, and Chris uh, Jackson will all be there. Uh, We've got all kinds of activities uh, planned and some great uh, meteorologists from the Carolinas going to be there. Also going to be some presentations, hands-on activities, so... Uh, it is a free event, so come on out to Gastonia and uh, come see us. We'd love to uh, we'd love to see you and meet you. And uh, we're going to be giving away a couple of weather radios as well, so uh, you'll have to find out how you can get those details once the event happens. And, uh, James, I know that we reached out uh, to Candace, who was putting this event on, and our friends um, from Atlanta, Georgia, the Storm Chasers, uh, sirens project. They have also been invited to um, Are they coming? the event. I haven't heard yet, but I think that uh, from what I last understood, they were seriously considering it. So uh, we may we may be seeing our friends as well up, uh, up in Gastonia.
2: That's right. Come hang out with all your friends from the Carolina Weather Group in real life. I- IRL, as the kids <laughs> say.
0: That's right. And James okay. is going to put you on a green screen and make you do a <laughs> forecast. That's right. <laughs>
2: I'll
3: go ahead and... Uh... Knock go ahead, out. Jay, I'm going to I'm gonna have to hop off here in about three minutes. So we've got to uh, get, get this one on here real quick. This was also Tweet of the Week from uh, Weather Nation as well. This was a pretty funny one from Mike Seidel, the Weather Channel, uh, from Hurricane West Virginia of all places. A really, really bad storm ongoing at this time. Let me see if I can get to play. I had it playing a second ago. What's going on here? Okay, there we go. Uh, so this la- this lady is out in this downpour. Uh, during this thunderstorm, and I mean, you can see the straight line winds just ripping through. While she still takes the time with her car open to go and put the grocery cart back, so you know you can definitely tell this this person does not have a fear of thunderstorms. <laughs> but I just love the the etiquette, right? The the morale, the morals there, right? So. <laughs> I mean.
0: There's Look, no, excuse, no excuse for us not to return a cart anymore. Is I, it?
3: Enough said. That's exactly right. I think that's a, as, a poster child for everyone. Put your carts away. There's nobody that is immune to it, and, and that's proof right there.
6: As a 16-year-old who used to put up carts um, as a high school job, I really appreciate that lady. So really <laughs> hey, that was one person. of my first
3: jobs. I, I did the same thing at, a, at the local Bilo when I was 15. So, yeah, I was like, wow. I can't believe how many people leave their cards out in the parking lot, right up next to other cars, too. But either way, um, yeah, just a, it, it was really, really cool video. It was kind of an eye opener for a lot of people. Really good stuff.
7: I think we should make her an honorary Weather Ready, ready Nation ambassador.
3: <laughs>
0: I, hey, I think we can do that. I think we can talk to the right <laughs> people and get that done. <laughs> All right, so Jared, do you have yours pulled up? So I'll let you go ahead.
4: Yeah, it's a tweet. I'm breaking the rule for the first time. I've been on here about a year and I've been, you know, doing all the right things. But alas, sometimes every once in a while, we just got to break the rules. So uh, this is a Facebook post by Josh Marthers, morning meteorologist at Channel 2, um, WCD, count on two, Um, Storm Team 2 meteorologist, morning meteorologist Josh Marthers. There we go. Got it right. Um, He has to say that a lot more than I do. Um, We've had a heck of a lot of rain in Charleston last couple weeks. Um, some stations were like 20, 21 inches of rain from July one to today. Um, and this has caused, uh, this caused some river flooding in some places that haven't, that usually only see river flooding when it's serious. And so this is along the Ashley river uh, in the Ashboro neighborhood. This is up towards a uh, Somerville area, I believe. Um, and uh, water was rising off the Ashley beginning to enter homes. There's no gauge on the Ashley here. So... There's, it's not a typical warning point uh, for the National Weather Service, and so, um, you know, we've we've been dealing with this uh, heavy rain. We've get, been getting a rapid this week, um, even though thunderstorms continue to fire. Uh, but there's more to come. It's just has stayed very, 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 very drenching, and I'm really tired of it.
1: Yeah, I'm looking yeah. to Sunday. That trough's going to build back over the eastern part of the country. It looks like last week all over again.
3: Me too. Yeah, I'm yep. done with it. I'm done. Yeah.
0: That's the
1: same area that flooded
3: from uh, Irma, correct? Yep.
1: Irma, yeah. 2015. So that's,
3: they're they're in an entrenched in battle with the town over the flooding issues in that area. So yeah, that's a that's a big uh, yep. big big uh, headliner. Every once in a while, I see that come across, and it's 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 a huge battle. So that's that's just a product of. Having to, to look look towards coastal resiliency, I mean, exactly what you're working on with the Sea Grant, um, mm-hmm. the project. So there, this, is a, this is becoming the normal thing, not just with rains, but with tides and rain. And it could be even worse with a perigee and spring tide. So mm-hmm. yep. that is the, these are the, the woes of development along the, the East Coast right now in Southeast region.
4: Yeah. I and mean, speaking of that Sea Grant project, and then I know that we've all got to go. We've all got lives. Allegedly, <laughs> um, you know, speaking of that Sea Grant project, Charleston, uh, Charleston Chuck Tefloods Hack, uh, we're putting this on uh, August twenty fourth through the twenty sixth. You've got until August thirteenth to get your team together and register for this. Uh, so, any coders out there, you know, if you can make it to Charleston, um, we'd love to have you. Uh, if you go on um, SCC Grant dot and I admittedly should have had this pulled up right out of the gate but you know how this goes we're doing it live all right anyway so uh, anyway so search chuck town floods hack i'm going to tweet something on chswx and we'll retweet it on the carolina weather group would love to have you out um, and uh, see what kind of idea to come up with for technology to help with coastal resiliency all
0: right thank you for that jared ashley do you have one all right, she's shaking her head no. So, uh, once again, we want to thank Matthew uh, for coming on tonight with the uh, Crowdsource Rescue. Uh, we will have the uh, podcast version loaded up here in the next day or two, and uh, we'd love for you to download that. Uh, make sure that you are downloading all uh, our pad- podcasts or subscribing to it uh, Stitcher and Apple iTunes, Google Play. What else am I missing, Jared? I'm uh, uh, doing a. Jared, all the James, things you guys do. All uh, the MySpace, <laughs>
6: <Rindster. laughs>
0: <laughs> What else am I missing, James? I know Apple, you Podcast, on. Google
2: Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio.
0: There we go. So make sure um, you are following us on those outlets. Uh, send in your requests if you have any specific shows or, or topics or guests. I know we had a request for Rob Fowler, so I'm going to make Shay and Jared work on that. Get the uh, get Rob on from. Uh, uh, from our Charleston station, but uh, again next what date,
3: week. What dates are you looking on that, Scotty? I,
0: I don't know what dates. Um, whatever we'll put date. Rob on did.
3: the spot by mentioning him on on air and saying, "All right, hey, Rob, you're coming back on in the next month and a half."
0: That's right. You're coming back on Rob between now and uh, October 31st. So <laughs> uh, next week we're talking about ratios with uh, Rush Shoemaker from Colorado State. He is actually the director of the Colorado Climate Center. Uh, So uh, Russ will be joining us. Then we're going to be talking with uh, Mark Willis from Surfline. And then we're going to be talking about my coast as Shay and Jared were just alluding to just a little bit ago. Uh, Chris Ray and Wesley Shaw will be joining us um, on August 29th. So that's a look at our next few shows here on the Carolina weather group. As always, we uh, welcome your suggestions and show topics and we'll do our best to get worked on that, uh, working on that. And we'd also like to mention, uh, we're going to continue our stream radar wise, at least and our weather radio stream as severe weather uh, continues to affect the Carolinas. So that'll be going on at least for the next little while until uh, the severe weather kind of dies down. So, uh, for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we appreciate you uh, watching tonight and following along with us. Make sure that you follow us on all our social media platforms and download um, us on your favorite podcast app. So until next week, have a great weekend and stay dry out there. And we'll see you back here next Wednesday night as we talk about Duratios with Dr. Rush Shoemaker. Uh, everyone have a, a great afternoon or a great evening and we'll uh, see you next Wednesday night.